Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of Refugee Stories. I'm your host, Jessica Stone, and today we're hearing from Abdullah. I'm Abdullah. I'm from Syria. Okay, he said that uh, he's from Syria, from Daira Zur uh, city. Uh, he was owned a big farmer of cows and uh, animals. And he also has a big truck to unload the animals and go sell it in around Syria. And uh, he's, he said that he was proud of her work. And he loved her work. He was very much her work. That's it. And one quick note here. I apologize for the quality of the audio. It's hard to record in a tent in the middle of a refugee settlement with limited equipment. And frankly, it's even harder to keep nine children quiet for an hour. Did you hear the word Daesh at the end there? That's the acronym in Arabic, which stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Which, of course, we Anglophones typically call ISIS or ISIL or Islamic State. Since that's the name they're currently using, that's how I'll refer to them. Although, it must be noted, it should really be self-styled Islamic State. Abdullah left Syria after he was caught smoking in his car. His punishment was 40 lashes. And those 40 lashes were a big influence in him leaving Syria with his whole family, nine kids, two of which are blind, and making the slow journey to Lebanon. It's hard to find specific evidence that smoking would be punished with 40 lashes by Islamic State. We do know, however, that the drinking is punishable by 80 lashes, because it's one of the crimes specifically defined in the Quran, and therefore codified in the legal system. So 40 for smoking seems probable. Do you miss doing this type of work? He said that yes, he miss her job a lot and uh, he hoped to come back to Syria just to do it again, do this work again. Uh, And he said that uh, he hoped that if if you stay at a refugee here in Lebanon to do it here in Lebanon, but it's impossible, that's what he said. I did this interview about a year ago. At that point, there was a pledge not to work rule, which I talked about a little bit in the first episode. This has since been changed. But there is so much general confusion in Lebanon about the employment rights of Syrians that many refugees still aren't working, or working only in very low-paid jobs, which means that it's unlikely that Abdullah will be able to get back into his family profession. Okay, uh, his father... He said that his father has, right now, 75 years old, and he still owns this work. And uh, the same for her mother, she has 65 years old, and then she still makes this work till now. Uh, they have uh, like a small farmer uh, who they, they do the milk and the cheese from the cows. So your parents are still in Syria at the moment? Yes, they're still right till now in Syria. And uh, the area where they they live right now, uh, they have uh, around this area the Syrian army and 
the, like the different kind who they're fighting in Syria. Um, if you don't mind me asking, why have your parents decided to stay in Syria, but you've decided to come here? Uh, he say for her parents, uh, they say that they are an older man and woman and uh, they prefer to die in Syria than to die out of her country. That must be very scary. Okay, you say that, yes, it's very dangerous and very scary where the area that they live because they cannot move or they cannot go out from their zoo. Uh, because of the checkpoints and, you know. Dirozu City is located on the Euphrates River between Raqqa and Mosul, the two Islamic State strongholds. Large-scale clashes started in the region on the 10th of April 2014, when Islamic State began to attack the area, which at that point was mostly held by the rebel groups. Both Islamic State and Al-Nusra Front were fighting against each other, as well as attacking the rebels. Within months, thousands of people had died, and more than 100,000 civilians had fled the province. Within three months, Islamic State controlled between 95 and 98 percent of the Deir Ezzur province. This is according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, a UK-based group that documents human rights abuses in Syria. These days, Deir Ezzur is located deep inside this Islamic State-held territory. And life under Islamic State control is no fun at all, unsurprisingly. Before the siege, Deir Ezzur had a population of about 300,000 people. However, the majority have left, and the 100,000 people still left in the city have limited access to food and services and suffer from widespread malnutrition and starvation. The UN's World Food Programme, in conjunction with the Syrian government and the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, has been regularly airdropping food and aid to the areas trapped by Islamic State in fighting. However, it's still not enough. And for him and the, her family, so they decide to come here to Lebanon because he has uh, a big family, about nine persons, and uh, because he was living uh, in, uh, in a site of uh, Deir Azur, who uh, ISIS, they just uh, bombed them. And so uh, they have traveling for four months, uh, depending uh, different areas in Syria, until they can arrive to the Lebanese borders, and then they came to the Bekaa. So, uh, yeah, the, maybe... The base point of uh, him is just to search for a safety place for her family. It's quite unusual to travel for four months within Syria before coming here. Is that yeah, what he said? Uh, yes, he yeah. was travelling for four months between uh, the different cities and countries because uh, when he moved from a city to another, he just uh, stayed for 15 to 20 days mm-hmm. in this until they planned where we go in the next. And was this with the whole family? Yes, with the whole family. Um, and then how did you come from Syria to Lebanon itself? Okay, uh, he say when he arrived to Lebanon, her first place, I think it uh, was in Anjar. Uh, 
he went to Anzar and uh, registered her family with the Red Cross, who they helped them in uh, mattresses and like this, like the shelter. And uh, then he stayed within Al-Marsh uh, with some of her relatives in a house. Uh, but also uh, here they have a lot of traveling between uh, Yazin and Rebecca. I went uh, to Al-Marj for five days, then to Bar el for five days until they found uh, the camp here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, he said in the beginning he don't have any money to buy the wood and the plastic sheet to build her tent or for the rent only. Uh, so until after that, uh, so when he got her paper and registered uh, to the UNHCR, so they helped them with the UNHCR card. So now he has he has money and uh, he came and uh, buy some wood and some plastic sheet and build her tent. How long did it take to build? He say that uh, for building the tent, uh, so it take for, uh, for about one month because uh, he just buy uh, like a small or a little quantity of food and plastic sheet in the beginning because he don't have enough money to buy a big uh, quantity. And yes, and after one month, when he got her first uh, like pay from the UNHCR, so he buy the rest of the quantities that uh, he need for the build. The thing is, he had a car in Syria, and he sold it to travel to Damascus. By the time he'd reached Lebanon, he was out of money, even to build a fairly basic shelter for his family. Most refugee shelters I've seen in Lebanon have the same basic materials. A wooden frame with tarpaulin stretched over it, and a varying number of rooms. The issue with structures like these is that they straddle a difficult line. They're simultaneously meant to be temporary, but they're often lived in for many years. I say that uh, in Deir Zur, he he has uh, a big land where they built her big house, and her her big house was for nine rooms. Each person of the family has a private room. Uh, and uh, I talk about uh, the relation between uh, the brothers and sisters and their parents. So it was like uh, uh, he described that that it's not uh, like uh, a relation between the family. There was like a friend. Uh, they are very lovely and uh, uh, they help each other and they work in the same uh, farmer. Uh, and he also said that he missed to, for this life. And what about his current situation? Before, uh, he loves like live with the freedom and uh, she has everything and he can do anything in her country. And uh, But now it's a big difference uh, from, the, from her past life because uh, here there is no freedom for the refugees in Lebanon, that's what they say, and uh, uh, he cannot move, he cannot do, do anything, he cannot find a work, so it's a big difference. When you were growing up, what was it like? Okay, uh, you say in 1978, 
uh, he has five, four years old. Uh, so he described the area where he was living. Uh, so it's about eight hundred uh, houses. And uh, he said that uh, it's not uh, like uh, we are our neighbors or something. We are like one family. So uh, when, when when one family decides to do some some food, so uh, it will uh, be like uh, a big ceremony or a big event for, the, for all the, the place where they live. So they do the food for all the families in this area. And uh, he also has her friends and uh, her neighbors. So uh, it was very, like very, very calm uh, area, and uh, they are they love each other. Is this um, typically Syrian? Do you think this idea of a community almost acting as one big family? All the Syrians are like, are like this, and he give an example, like he's from uh, a place, and this guy are from, is from another place, but uh, uh, they do that here also in the settlement, and uh, the relation between them, whatever if they are, they are from different places, but uh, they think that all the Syrians are one family. Okay, he uh, say that uh, in the place where they are live, so uh, all the people are Muslims, but uh, also just about 11 or 12 families was uh, Christian, but uh, uh, he say that uh, we don't care about the religion of the people, we are just one family and we are a human. So religion is for God, not for the people. So each uh, people has her uh, like own religion. But in Syria, we just care about the human, not about the religion. So yeah, he's saying that they will be forever like one family, one big family. When Abdullah says that everybody was like one big family, I'm inclined to believe it. Yes, of course. As far as he's concerned, I'm culturally Christian. And he might have had that in mind when he made that comment, thinking that it would endear me to him, and perhaps anybody else listening to this podcast. But there's also a lot of truth to the idea that Syria has always been incredibly diverse in terms of religion. And throughout a large portion of its history, these multiple religious groups have managed to coexist. Of course, the situation is complex, but both Syria and Lebanon and the many, many religious groups from this region were all living together under the Ottoman Empire. At the end of World War I, when the Allies cut up the Ottoman Empire into the states of Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon, France was the country that had control over the newly formed states of Syria and Lebanon. And it was actually the French who separated the country into its different ethnic and religious groups by portioning out particular regions to specific religious minorities, regardless of whether or not they made up the majority in that region. For instance, in Greater Lebanon, the Christians were given authority over the region, despite only making up about 30% of the population. The French authorities also reshuffled these divisions every now and again, creating a lot of instability in the area and increasing friction between the different groups. 
After a while under this French rule, the Maronite Christians drew his followers, Sunni and Shia Muslims, united in order to revolt against their new French overlords during the years 1925 to 1927. There was a general sense from some Syrians during that period that the French were trying to pit the different groups together. Enough of a sense that one rebel, Sultan Alatrash, wrote the following in his manifesto on the 23rd of August, 1925. The imperialists have stolen what is yours, raised barriers and divided your indivisible homeland. They have separated the nation into religious sects and states. To arms, let us free our people from bondage. The revolt by Sultan Alatrash ultimately failed, but later self-styled leaders did succeed. What's interesting about Sultan Alatrash's manifesto is how clearly, even all that time ago, some Syrians were concerned with how the French had cut their land up into pieces and how that fundamentally weakened the people. Unsurprisingly, with colonial interference like this, Syrians didn't manage to form national unity at all and were easily prey to a series of military coups after regaining independence in 1946. It began with Husni al-Zaim's coup in March 1949, the first military coup in the Arab world, launched with American encouragement, if not prompting. Four and a half months later, Zaim was killed during a second coup, carried out by Colonel Sami al-Hinawi. At one point, there was a short-lived political union between Syria and Egypt, called the United Arab Republic. The Nasser vision of a single great Arab nation collapses overnight as Syria revolts against his rule and proclaims itself an independent state. Which lasted from 1958 to 1961, when it was broken by, you guessed it, yet another military coup on September 28, 1961. In fact, Syria managed the unenviable feat of 10 coups in the two decades post-independence from France. When Syria was finally finished with all of these military coups, they were rewarded with nearly 50 years of dictatorship under the last two presidents, Hafez al-Assad and his son Bashar al-Assad. In short, Syria has had a really bad run of it politically for a very, very long time. What sorts of things are you hearing about Syria at the moment? You say that uh, they can't speak uh, with this this thing on the phone because uh, and, and they're scared to, I don't know, maybe some of the government, they hear if that uh, he talk about this situation. So, yeah, no, no they, they didn't speak about this on the phone. So he don't know what's the situation right now. Only uh, see on, on the TVs. Abdullah has given an interview before. An important interview with a high-profile figure in international aid. And this interview went on television. And then Islamic State went to Abdullah's father and asked him why his son was talking about Syria on television. Abdullah's father denied everything, but it must have been scary. And now Abdullah is justifiably a bit worried about the impact that his opinions, freely expressed, might have on his family still left in Syria. And according to Freedom House, an independent watchdog organisation dedicated to the expansion of freedom and democracy around the world, 
Syria ranks as the second worst country in the world for internet freedom. In areas like Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor, Islamic State has issued strict regulations on internet access. Private internet access was limited in mid-2015 to public locations that can be policed by the extremists, often the Hizbah police, a type of religious police designed to promote virtue and prevent vice, to dry up sources of evil and prevent the manifestation of disobedience. This means that licenses are only provided to loyal businesses, which in turn means the Wi-Fi is only available at four internet cafes in all of Deir ez-Zor city, and all four of these cafes are under heavy surveillance. From what you hear from your brothers and sisters in Syria, how is your life in Lebanon different from their life now currently in Syria? He said that uh, whatever if I am a refugee here in Lebanon, but my life is still better than her life in Syria because uh, the place where they live, uh, so there is for ISIS in Syria, so it's, you know, very dangerous. So it's, it's different and it's, uh, her life is better than, than her life. In Syria, was, uh, it's more safety and uh, it's a little bit uh, some of freedom here in Lebanon than Syria right now. You might have heard before that the Syrian civil war is the best covered war ever in history. This is despite the lack of international news media. Since international media is banned in Syria, the main sources of second-hand information and disinformation are private videos made on mobile phones and uploaded to YouTube. The sheer proliferation of these videos has also made it difficult to navigate between truth and propaganda. Everybody from Islamic State to the rebels to regime supporters to undercover activists is using the videos and other forms of social media to promote their cause. And the sheer quantity of amateur videos is all the more striking in a country which had previously been able to hide its massacres a little too well. When Assad's father, Hafez, crushed a 1982 uprising in the city of Hama, killing thousands of civilians, he was able to keep it almost completely hidden from the world. They told us the people of Hama, they all of him, they are terrorists and criminal, and we have to kill them all. We have to clean the city from him. Nobody have a weapon. We see people in the street protest, you know. They have nothing, kids, women, you know. And then we start shooting people everywhere. We start go house by house. I will never forget anything. Everything I have it, like when I spoke to you now, I have it front of my eyes. I remember everything. I remember all the blood in Hamad. That was an excerpt from an interview with the perpetrator in the Hama massacre, conducted by Pierre Schulfield. The original casualty estimate by Western media was 1,000. To this day, the final death toll is not known, although it ranges between 20 and 40,000. It is widely regarded as the single bloodiest assault by an Arab ruler against his own people in modern times. But these days, Syria refuses to stay silent about the massacres that happen to its own people. 
In 2014, the group Deer Resort is being slaughtered silently, a local monitoring group that secretly maps and records the mass graves left by Islamic State militants and pro-government forces. stated that the 3,000 people who were then missing were buried in 36 mass graves in four villages in the region. 13 of these mass graves were left in the regions controlled by the government and the rest in regions controlled by Islamic State. And these graves, much like those over 20 years before in Hama, were filled with men, women, children, the elderly, everybody. These days, even without international media, people are making sure that deaths are being counted and reported. It's just hard to tell if anybody is really listening. So for you, it was the right choice to bring your family here. I say honestly, uh, I hope that, but uh, I wish to I come back to him to Syria to live with them in Syria. Are you looking forward to showing your children Syria again? Because some of them are quite small. Okay, uh, he said that uh, only two of her children, they don't know what's going on in Syria, and her house and her life, how it was in Syria. But, uh, only this little boy, when they leave, when they decide to leave Syria, he was five months, so he was yeah, very small, so... Uh, yeah, and they say sometimes they just talk about Syria and about their life, but he say that they are very small, so they cannot understand right now the situation. But the rest of the children, they know what's going on, and they remember her life in Syria. Do you mind telling us one of the stories that you talk about with your children about Syria, like one of the ways that you keep the memory alive? He, tell like uh, a story about their life so uh, he like just let him know how was uh, her work before with her dad uh, he told him that uh, sometimes he go with her dad to and he work for about two hours to uh, go and buy some cows and some animals to her farmer and uh, how was it the life in Syria very easy and they can't do anything and they have work, and uh, <laughs> he said uh, he talk about Chinas uh, that uh, when during when he told them like these stories, so they are very interested to go to Syria and live like this life. Uh, he said that her first hoop is uh, for her maybe son and her daughter that they cannot see in her eyes so we hope that in the future cannot, can, they can uh, do the surgery and just be a, as a normal people and uh, the second thing is uh, he hoped to her children to be educated and to went to the schools and university because uh, he say that uh, uh, right now I'm not educated uh, so I have a bad life so education is very important in life and especially in our time right now because uh, there are a lot of technology and a lot so that need to be educated. Are they in school at the moment, your children, or is he currently finding it challenging? He said that only Ahmad and Rahma, who they have a 
ice problem. Uh, they went to a church in Zahle uh, that it's specific for these cases. Ahmed and Rama are the two blind children. They're going to an evangelical church school. Uh, but uh, the rest of uh, children, no, they don't want to the schools because uh, uh, the system, the Syrian education system in Syria are very different from the Lebanese here. So he went before, but it was very difficult and different for him. So it's impossible to want to the schools. One son, Yasin, studied up until year nine in Syria, but he didn't continue in Lebanon. I'll have an education-specific episode later on, but in a nutshell, school in Syria was held in Arabic. School in Lebanon is taught in French or English. This means that many Syrian students have an incredibly hard time in the Lebanese public school system. Because Syrian students have usually missed out on a few years of schooling and have lower levels of English and French, they're placed in classes with kids several years younger than they are which is obviously not great for self-esteem. There are also reports from Human Rights Watch that Syrian students face bullying and harassment on the way to school and in the classroom from bystanders, other children, bus drivers, teachers and school administrators, even including physical attacks. So on a slightly different topic, I want you to tell me about a time when you were really happy. The one say that uh, since that he burned in Syria uh, until they decided to leave, uh, so all her life was full of happiness. But the special moment was when he was 15 years old, uh, so when her dad uh, buy for him a car, a new car. So yeah, it was the uh, most happiness moment for him. What was the car? Uh, it's a kind of Nissan. Yeah, pickup truck. Uh, yes, think, right? yeah. exactly, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he went uh, far away from her country to another country to buy it from a, a company of Nissan in Syria. And they pay uh, $20,000 for this truck. Yeah. What did you like to do with this truck? Where did you like to go? Okay, uh, he said that uh, there was a place, uh, like uh, a river, Furat River. It's about uh, 500 meters from our house. So he went with the pickup to this place uh, for swimming and wash her car in the river with her friends because uh, he said that uh, I am my own though. I don't have any responsibilities. So I just stay for a long time there and I love at this point in the interview, Abdullah pulled out his phone and showed me a photo of a different car. This car right now in Syria, Kia. Who's driving it now? They, uh, they put it in a, a garage in Syria and uh, they put on the car a lot of wood and things because if I just see this car, so just they will come and take it. What about his house? Is someone living in it now? 
He said that he has two houses in Syria. The first one was detroited by the war, and the second one uh, is used by her parents right now in Syria. Yeah. Are they like hiding a lot of things in this house? Okay, uh, he said that uh, like the most uh, important and expensive things that they have uh, was in uh, for all her family and uh, her first uh, house who was detroited by a bomb. So they, they don't have anything right now. Okay. Only the jewelry of the woman. Okay. Yeah. No, that's very sad. I can't imagine losing yeah, exactly. all of yeah. the family yeah. possessions. Okay, I say that uh, before uh, they have uh, a family life, they live with each other and they eat, and they do all, all the things. Uh, and whatever if he said that, whatever if uh, he lose the lot of her things and expensive things, so but. He said that, but uh, we we win our life. We're still alive, so that's the most important. Uh, we hope uh, to all the Syrian uh, people think uh, like how, like how, like how he think, just to take care of uh, her life and don't care about other things, religion and a politician problem. Yeah, just uh, think that uh, they should should be safety and they should stay alive and take care of her families. Have you found this safe place that you were looking for when you came in Lebanon? Did you find it here? Okay, he say that uh, maybe I found uh, a safety place but not uh, full of safety because there's no uh, safety place like uh, our country. Yeah. He just, uh, he said that he just uh, found like about 60% of safety here, but not full of safety. Have you feel welcomed here when you come to Lebanon? Okay, uh, he said that uh, Lebanon and Syria are my, like my country, like one country, and uh, uh, yes, he... Uh, he got a welcome in the beginning and he thanked uh, the Lebanese government because uh, he said that uh, he is a small government in a small in, in a county that has a lot of refugees and people so uh, they do a big uh, work with the refugees and they help a lot the refugees what are the little things that make you happy in your everyday life here Okay, uh, he said that the, the simple thing uh, that may let him live a good life and a happy life here is uh, just to be able to move in a freedom here because uh, uh, the Lebanese people, he say that they love the Syrian refugees here and uh, with a good relation, so uh, yeah, we don't have any problem with traveling here, and that's the most important thing. I was curious how you imagine your situation in the future. 
He thinks that uh, the war in Syria will run away and will finish, and uh, Syria will be better uh, soon, and uh, they will come back. That's what he we see like a future uh, pictures for Syria. So uh, all the things will be okay, and uh, all the refugees will come back to Syria, and uh, the war will end. That's what he said. That was the second episode of Refugees Stories. This episode was made in association with Salam LADC. This is a wonderful local NGO working in the Bekaa Valley right now. They do a wide range of projects, ranging from distributing necessities like oil, food and clothing, to educational projects and community projects. If you would like to contribute money to Abdullah, his settlement, or people like him, please go to www.salamladc.org. That's www.salamladc.org. If you want the money to go to Abdullah's settlement specifically, please write the name Abdullah, A-B-D-U-L-L-A-H, on your donation and Salam will talk to him about the best way to invest the money in the settlement itself, so that it reaches as many people as possible. Of course, all statements are my own, and not to be blamed on Salam in any way. They merely provided the support for this project of mine, and should not be held responsible for my political beliefs or my errors and misunderstandings. This episode was sponsored by Hindenburg Audio Suite the fantastic audio editing program that was used in the making of this episode. For the music, thanks go to Alphamel, Yusuf Kekia, Amra Ez, Nuno Adelaide, Rocco Granata, Axel Tree, Yusuf Tej, Bando Comunali and Internazionale, and the Orchestra of Syrian Musicians. Amra Ez is an up-and-coming musician from Egypt. Bando Comunali and Internazionale is a band from Dresden, which is made up of musicians from many countries, including Syrian refugees. The Orchestra of Syrian Musicians is exactly what it sounds like, oddly enough. And an enormous and very grateful thanks to my translator, Hassan Chubasi. My second and no less valued translator for this episode was Wael Yassin. He himself is a Syrian refugee, originally from the Deir Ezzawa area, and he provided a second lot of translations to catch any gaps Hassan didn't have time or breath to get to. It's really not easy translating, and both of these men have done fantastic work. Further thanks go to Justine Boyer, who was my assistant for this episode. It's her lovely Swiss-French accent that you can hear asking excellent questions I could never have thought of by myself at a few points during the episode. Thank you also to Pierre Schollfeld for the permission to use an excerpt of one of his interviews. And finally, thanks go to Miguel Isoto Sanchez for his continued patience. Thank you also to Abdullah himself and all the other refugees who let me into their homes and trusted me with their stories. I can only hope that these stories go out into the world and help others to understand the situation. And finally, my name is Jessica Stone. I'm the writer and producer of this podcast. Thank you for listening to Abdullah's Story.